0: Escape from Plan A. Yes. Sergeant Shaw. Who is
1: this? Sergeant Raymond Shaw. Yes. Raymond Prentice Shaw. Yes. No.
2: Listen. Go to the bedroom of your suite. Enter the hallway there. Go to the end.
1: All right, well, good evening or good morning, good afternoon, whatever the time it is for you listeners. I'm your host, Oxford and Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, so tonight is another special guest episode. Uh, so a few, I guess, has it already been over a month or maybe two months? Um, I was on a podcast, Model Majority, and uh, you know we're very welcome to reciprocate. And we're very happy to reciprocate and have on Kevin on Escape from Planet. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing?
2: Hey, guys, how are you doing? You. Great to have you here.
1: Oh, yes, um, and we're really glad to have you, too. And joining us tonight also, we have Jess. Hey. And Teen. Hey, everyone, how's it going? So how's everyone doing? Not too bad, all things considered. <laughs>
3: like, personally or my feeling of impending doom and apocalypse? Uh,
1: well, that, I guess, is quite related to the topic we have to the, uh, for this episode, which is um, about the midterms. But, uh, you know, listeners, don't worry, this is not going to be just like some boring, um, you know, horse race talk, which I think at this point, what's the point of political analysis? Right? Is it really uh like a weighing of the choices going on hmm what should i should i vote you know blue or red i feel like at this point you already know what you're doing it's, the only thing that really matters is how many people are going to show up so uh rather than talk about that it's going to be more about uh just you know well, yeah like 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 not looking more long term just what is the, the asian american political consciousness where what what does it mean to to believe in in our own political ideas that's not just us, you know, hopping on the bandwagon of whichever team is winning or whatever. But before we get all to that, let's, uh, Kevin, tell us a bit about yourself in case people uh, don't know uh, much about your background. Like, you know, how did you get into Model Majority uh, and things like that?
2: Sure. Uh, so again, my name is Kevin Shu. I am the co-host of this podcast called the Model Majority Podcast, which is a weekly pod that works to amplify the Asian American voice in the public discourse through guest interviews, like having folks like Oxford on our show, and through our own discussion with uh, my co-host Tony Nagatani to really get more people politically engaged no matter what their political preferences are. And before the pod, which is something I'm running as a side project, I used to work in the Obama administration, including stints in the White House Press Office and the Commerce Department, when Gary Locke was Commerce Secretary. And for those of you who may know Gary Locke, he was the first uh, Asian American governor, uh, at least on the continental USA. And before even that, I started out working as a field organizer for the first Obama campaign back in 2008 which is how I got my start in this whole political thing.
1: Uh, just to reassure listeners, a moderate majority has much more important guests than than me on. So like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, they, they get some good guests up in there. You guys
0: do a good job. Yeah, I think. Like, and uh, Kevin sounds like he was an early investor in Obama. So very well done. Well, right. well played.
2: I should try my uh, my uh, touch in angel investing next and make some
1: money. So
0: yeah, I mean twenty twenty twelve, you know twenty twelve guy is not the same as the two thousand eight guy. So. Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, Kevin,
1: which. Uh, which state did you still like did you start out as like a canvasser in one of the primary states for obama 08 and if so like which state was it uh
2: so i started actually relatively late into the game i was still in college during 2007 i graduated in 2008 i i guess i could have uh, left college and worked for obama as well but i decided to graduate first and the state i worked in after i graduated was in charlotte north carolina
1: oh good important state he won north carolina right he did. That
2: was uh, yeah. the only time that we actually pulled it off. And there are a lot of stories I can share from that experience, too. But uh, maybe for another day, unless you really want to hear it.
3: <laughs> that, actually, that actually would be a fascinating story at some point um, to, talk, to talk about what the climate was in North Carolina at that time. Right. I mean, I, uh, I grew up in L.A. and I was in Boston at that time. You know, both very heavily Democrat states. So watching it play out in, you know, these somewhat in these contested states, um, I never really quite got a feel for what it was like on the ground, like what that what that Mm -hmm. mood was like, regardless of what your affiliation was, like just what kind of energy was there at the time.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, to kind of give a short summary of that, it was certainly very contentious, especially if you're working in the field operation, which is essentially you're getting paid to either Canvas or to organize volunteers to scale your operation to Canvas. So you're really interacting with both people who are going to vote for you and people who hate you and don't want to vote for you uh, on a daily basis in a very, uh, you know, arm's length type of interaction. So
1: I was going to say, maybe we can um, reach into that well of stories if our pod just gets too dark and dire. <laughs> think back to happier times. You know, 2008. Wow, what a time. Okay. All right, so let's move on to the the topic. Um, so uh, the, the midterms are coming up, and uh, everyone listening, register to vote. Go vote. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you to uh you know uh, uh, everyone should go vote and um you know uh it's just important that you vote no it's very important that you don't vote for you know whoever's like the trump guy so what's the exact date it's like november november that's right yeah november
2: 6th is election day
1: yes so uh everyone keep that in mind i can't vote because i'm not american but everyone who is american and registered uh should go all right so one thing that might be uh useful just just as a as a, just like a primer is it's just the evolution of how Asian Americans have become uh, very reliably uh, democratic. Uh, I think the the exit uh, data from twenty sixteen was like at least seventy five percent of Asian Americans voted for for like Hillary Clinton. Kevin, did you um for, because you were involved in politics, did you uh, see this happen, or, or by the time you got into it, this had ar- the, the the like switch had happened already.
2: Right. So since uh, my start was the first Obama campaign, that was when I first observed a lot of these things. And I think Obama really brought out a lot of people from a politically apathetic world. Uh, of which many Asian Americans uh, were, and perhaps still is today, into the process. So just myself was really like an example or an anecdote of that experience. Um, I'm not a politically very active person growing up, you know, having grown up in a pretty typical Chinese American immigrant household, politics wasn't really like on top of our mind sort of a thing, never grew up, you know, uh, making buttons for candidates or going knock on doors with my parents and things like that, which a lot of Uh, other uh, people do. And that really kind of, I think, started... The whole wave of Asian American becoming more Democratic, voting for Democratic candidates up and down the ballot, all the way up until uh, Hillary Clinton, which she captured really uh, more than a supermajority right, of the people from the Asian American community who did turn out to vote. And that is partially because of Obama, but also because of the people that brought into the fold, too, like staffers, like myself, who could better represent candidates in front of the Asian American community.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's a a good like uh, discussion points to talk about Obama and wonder if, because I remember um reading uh, Fresh Off the Boat by Eddie Huang and and you know Eddie Huang, uh, he, he just adored Obama. There's like a whole part where he talks about like basically like Obama was the first Asian American president to him. And I think uh and I kind of felt that too. And I think to a lot of Asian Americans, well, we felt that did we kind of rely too much on him and and see him too much as as a uh, just like him as the person, um, and lose our moorings as just like, well, what are our beliefs in, in terms of politics as opposed to just liking this guy so much? What do you guys think? I,
0: I think I think on the on the count of um, just the, just the sheer number of Asian Americans that he advanced uh, through appointment was uh, to me something I'd never seen before. Um, I'm talking about, uh, judges and cabinet members. Remember, Stephen Chu was his uh, energy secretary, a very well qualified energy secretary with the Nobel Prize. Something we've. Uh,
1: Eric Shinseki. Um, Eric Shinseki.
0: Uh, there was another Gary guy, Locke uh, in, in two, two. My old boss, Gary Locke. <laughs> yeah, Gary Locke in two separate uh, positions, ambassador to China and also, what was it? Uh, was it commerce secretary?
2: The commerce secretary, yeah. correct. And, and
0: then just a whole host of judges. Uh, if you look at a lot of the. Asian-American judges that have been instrumental in in blocking uh, some of Trump's uh, most egregious uh, travel restrictions by executive order. Those have been, um, most of them, I think like Dolly G and I think Theodore Chuang uh, and some others, there are at least two others. I think they were all Obama appointees. So I think on that alone, um, uh, in in terms of something specific to Asian-Americans, I thought that was... But huge um really really big
3: yeah I, mean, I remember uh hearing about a judge who was uh appointed by obama's several uh years ago and then he he came into pro- the public eye again this year uh, when he was one of the judges that uh put a, a, ho- a halt on the travel ban earlier this year i forget his name that's I should remember the Hawaii yeah, like judge, Derek yeah. Watson,
0: or something. I think is his name. Um, yes, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another one just recently in California, district court judge, also also an Asian American. I think Chinese American. Yeah.
1: Oh, Edward Edward Chen, I think, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Like also, that I, believe. I think
0: he's also an Obama appointee, though I'm not sure about that one. But I know Dolly G. She she is one.
1: Right. And I
2: think that kind of goes into perhaps why people, not just our community, but even other communities still miss the guy, is that he didn't just promise a lot of stuff back in 2008, which, uh, you know, is a fair criticism if you think he did at the time. But he actually delivered on quite a bit using the power that he did have as president to make our entire government, whether it's the judicial system or you know the uh, executive branch and so on and so forth, much more representative, right of how this country actually looks,
1: yeah, I mean, but the problem is now that he's gone, what's left right? Because I don't think the the democratic platform without obama is is not nearly as appealing as we we thought it was uh especially after they lose uh that's when you start being able to really assess wait a minute like uh why do we say yes to all this um there's a lot of bad shit uh going on um one prime example that i I think of is uh, the tpp which you know i'm not i'm not an economics expert i'm not like a foreign trade expert so i i didn't have strong feelings uh, you know about it really but i knew that a lot of, uh, a lot of people were very passionately against it especially uh like on on the the left uh like the leftist uh, uh, li- uh on the liberal spectrum um and if i felt any defensiveness over it, it was because it was one of obama's signature uh, achievements right it was something he'd worked incredibly hard for uh but once like the the actual election was over and and Trump won, you're you thinking about it, it's like 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 TPP does like a lot of things fucked up with it, and and now that we're freed from having to associate it with Obama, you can really take take a a deep look at it and just be like, oh man, like why we should have I well I I thought I should have I should have seen it more for what it was. Um, did you guys have similar instances of that kind of thing, in which your kind of personal like for for him uh, made you kind of give him a few passes on things that we shouldn't have? I mean, I can I can, I can offer a brief answer. I may, I mean, Kevin, I, I
0: was actually technically working for the Obama administration, I suppose, though for an independent agency. Um, at the I was at the SEC and uh, working on Dodd Frank, and my my impression of Obama at that time. Was you know, it's funny, if you actually go back to the Obama era and, and and the closer you got to what his administration was really tasked with doing, it's so overwhelmingly dominated by a response to the financial crisis that we, we, we kind of forget how big of an issue that was uh, the moment he took office and how it came to define his presidency. It's rarely talked about now because I think, yeah, you're right, um, Oxford. It's like, I do think that he... There, there is a Rorschach quality to Obama's identity, where I think everyone was able to find something not only to like but to directly relate to, and I and, and I think as an Asian American, there was so much there, including the fact that he actually grew up in Asia, uh, and there, he has a lot of Asians in his family, and I, you know, I think that it's it's hard to it, for me it's hard to judge Obama because I think the reality was that. You know his almost his entire administration was about reacting to crises that were not necessarily of his own making so i ultimately think that he was a great president but in terms of being like a crisis you know a like a like a respond like a crisis manager what he did in terms of you know moving the needle on you know any ch- significant change in the direction of the country, I think is kind of overblown. And and mostly, it's chalked up to sort of soft things like, um, right now, we're, we're really talking about race and gender in this country. And if you recall, those just weren't issues at the time of, 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 of uh, when Obama first ascended into the White House. It was all about managing a global crisis, the
1: likes of which we'd never seen before. So, Yeah, Kevin, as an insider, what uh, what's your take on all that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, teen actually, (laughs) I wish more people care about history (laughs) the way that teen just did. Not even ancient history. This is literally like less than 10 years, right, of memory that we're talking about here. Um, It's just how far we've come from when Obama took office back in 2009, how we're losing hundreds of thousands of jobs every single month, how we have double-digit unemployment rates, and how much this entire country... Needed fixing to get us there. And even in the context of TPP, right, going to Oxford's point, uh, yes, it's controversial and no one likes everything that's in a trade agreement. That's why it takes so long to make up one, let alone a multilateral one that involves like, you know, 12, 13 different countries. Um, even I think the The US uh, South Korea trade agreement, the bilateral one that we passed during the administration, during the Obama administration chorus, which uh, that was also very controversial, right? For people on the left who are pro labor or people on the right who are pro trade, so on and so forth. But these are hard questions to solve. And I think, you know, I don't want to just become this Obama defender just because I worked for the guy for so long. But I think one thing he did do extremely well is that he treated everything as an issue, not as a piece of ideology that had to fit into a uh, you know a litmus test of some sort, right? He kind of treated everything based on facts, based on intellect, and based on expertise uh, to fix it. And that I think is number one, the polar opposite of what's happening right now in the Trump administration. Uh, but also, it's hard for the Democrats to go forward too, because I think the lost, losing your bearing for Asian Americans when it comes to political conscience question is literally what the entire Democratic Party is struggling with at this very moment, even though there is a good chance that the Democrats is going to be able to get the majority in the House. So that's a little bit of light in your day, Jess, if uh, that could brighten your um, <laughs> evening a little bit. So there's going <laughs> to be some hopefully checks and balances constitutionally, right, to the Trump presidency, which I think to me is the biggest piece of the stake when it comes to why
1: this November matters so much. Yeah, good point. Um, So uh, let's assess what's uh, happened after the the 2016 election, because we talk about it a lot in Plan A, and and we we think of it as uh, pretty much uh, like a situation where like everything's just just a scramble now, uh, as as Kevin you said. So yourself, the, the Democratic Party itself uh, has 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 realized that they, they kind of lost their bearings. They they got to find out what what they what they believe in and everything. So let's focus on Asian Americans here, because uh, we I think we were we put a lot of faith in that this kind of white liberalism that was being buoyed by you know the the big uh, Democratic Party ship was going to uh, well, uh you know it's going to have its ups and ups and downs but you know arc of history blah 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 it was generally heading the right path we were on we were on it i mean we weren't just on it because we wanted you know we thought they were going to win and we just wanted to jump on the winning team but we believed in it and you know they might have disappointed us uh quite a lot actually but you know uh, on the whole they were the good guys and, and we believed in them but then once they they lose uh that kind of like compact is broken and now we're trying to figure out all right well i think we got to find out what we believe in so that we're not always just being called upon to provide votes when this issue needs us or whatever but um yeah so it's like what what do what should asian americans believe that is that is a tough question
3: that's a tough question (laughs) that you just tossed out there (laughs) should Uh, i go first (laughs) so we're just like okay so okay here's why. okay so
1: uh okay here's one thing uh, we were talking about this uh earlier you and me teen so uh, let's talk about it now uh right now the big debate uh like the big like dumbed down one-on-one debate in the democratic party is race versus class right or race uh you know slash gender just like social identity identity versus class that's like the kind of dumbed down version you might see in like the atlantic or something like that um so, so from the asian-american perspective though it's not so easily distinguishable because I, I, like race and class only get separated because because like usually to white people like obviously uh, the days of like the the 30 years war or like you like dirty irish uh you know like the english saying that those days are over in america so for for like white people class is usually one of the main uh divisions and gender uh but but to them race always seems like something that's that's like uh like that third thing that that's out there that kind of has an impact, but they don't quite understand. Whereas for Asian Americans, race is so intricately tied to class that sometimes I, I don't even think that there's so, uh, like, you can really distinguish them where one begins and one where ends. So let's talk more about that. Yeah, and Ke- Kevin, uh, this is a conversation
0: that I had with uh, Oxford and, I, and to, to my, my uh, maybe if I could formulate a question there, it's kind of like, you know, what what's your, t- it, it basically boils down to you know, maybe what's the Asian American attitude towards identity politics? Because, you know, we we have a a really, really intense debate going on about identity politics, which often is code for um, what they they call an extremist identitarian left or pejoratively SJW, uh, you know, neo-Marxist left or whatever. And Asian American is an identity, but it's not in now or, or prior ever really been that tied to a particular political brand or political movement the way, say, BLM and uh, black politics was at, at a certain point and maybe continues to be. Um, so what's your what do you think is the uh, state of identity politics? Is this something that Asian-Americans should have an attitude about or, you know, what, how do you think about
2: it? Right. So this is something I obviously think about a lot, um, just like you guys do. And as far as having a coherent identity or a political identity to the Asian American uh, community broadly is concerned, I think there is One that can be made. Uh, You can never count on everyone to be part of that identity. I think by definition, identity is a very individualistic thing. And I'm always very cautious about actually uh, kind of prescribing identity, right, on top of other people, given that our experiences are so dissimilar. Um, But I think there's There's more so the thing with the Asian American identity in my opinion, is it is less of a positive, positive in the sense that I'm about to be identified with something, but slightly more of a negative uh, connotation or, or a negative direction in the sense that I am not something. And what I mean by that is that the Asian American identity, at, at least as far as historically, how it even came about, is really a sense of joint victimhood. Um, You know, that really dates back to, you know, the Vincent Chin murder case where, you know, Vincent Chin was uh, murdered by a few white guys who were pissed off about their automobile, uh, you know, plan closing down. And they thought Vincent was Chinese, but, you know, they thought Vincent was Japanese, but Vincent was actually Chinese. And then he got beaten up. And it was almost that mistake of uh, identifying which kind of Asian is Vincent that triggered a wider understanding or awakening that doesn't matter what stripe of Asian you are, you kind of have to band together to protect yourself. And that, in my opinion, is probably the most coherent story that our identity or our community can tell as far as having a political uh, political identity is concerned, which is, you know, something that we didn't have before, or like Jess said, not nearly as coherently as, say, the African American political identity, which really ultimately ties back to slavery, right, um, or the Hispanic political community, which has a lot to do with the migration pattern of, uh, Hispa- or you know, Latinx countries in general, not just Mexico, going into the United States and other stuff that happens in there. So, So it's not a very clean answer, but I think there are a lot of people in our community working on having an articulation of that right now. And whether that identity goes Democrat or Republican is actually, you know, kind of a different discussion. And I'm not a big party loyalist, to be honest with you. So there are things that we can do really to be more influential. It doesn't matter which party we uh, tend to vote for.
3: I think what you said about about, it being an identity of of, uh, negatives really it, it really resonates with me even in terms of asian-american as a as a personal identity i feel like that's a, a key uh anxiety that that kind of shows up in a lot of asian-american writing uh it's mostly you know when we when people decide to try to have a conversation about what does it mean to be be asian-american personally it's more it's more like I'm not black. I don't face I don't face the struggles that black Americans face. I don't face the struggles that, you know, Hispanic Americans face. But at the same time, I'm also not a white American. Right? So it's kind of like figuring out like adding adding it's kind of like figuring out what it means to be in an interstitial space across identities more than having a single uh, a single core identity of its own that stands uh, stands alone. So it seems like as far as a political identity it's concerned what I really see is a- Asian Americans weighing in on other communities issues and staking their claim to that as a core Asian American political identity.
1: Yes, yeah, uh, well, what's actually even worse? Huh? What's well, actually even worse just I want to talk about a really good point you made how a lot of times uh, like, like the Hispanic political identities often uh, an imposed identity that revolves around an issue that's very useful for, uh, like the, the mainstream liberals, like in the Democrats, for example, immigration. So then being Hispanic, you have to be all about immigration. Or if you're black, you have to be all about, um, you know, affirmative action or, or, uh, voting rights or, or something that, that they want to define you as. So if they are having that imposed and we, our identity is derived from that imposition, we're like so removed from an actual independent, um, ability to think for ourselves. Cause, cause I don't think you can define a political identity based on a few, uh, stances on policy, especially policy that's being given to you from a party or a think tank. And I just want Asian Americans to be able to just have some, uh, sense of, like a body of knowledge and framework that that you don't have to like consult a book when when somebody asks you what's your opinion on this like oh what what's like the party line or or what am I supposed to think about that it's just like you you draw on what you have built up in, in inside like your own head and your experiences and you can just come up with a natural. Um, sympathy you have for, for a certain thing and then you line up what all your beliefs are and then whatever like party whether it's like two parties or maybe there'll be a system when there's multiple parties and you just look at the party that lines up most well with what you believe in and you go with them as opposed to feeling like pre-loyal to one and then trying to uh shape your own beliefs to fit that
2: Hmm. and actually i want to Yeah, I'm going to want to almost kind of add another layer to the point uh, to Jess. First of all, I think it's, you know, the thing is, right, if you're a pretty conscientious Asian American, you know what our community struggle is, right? So we're not, like, lacking struggles <laughs> or stuff that we need to defend ourselves against or fight about. Uh, I think there needs to be a lot of work done, though, to make that a coherent story. And in terms of the political affiliation, one interesting thing about the Asian American, you know, community, broadly speaking, and this is actually backed up by data. Uh, a lot of surveys have been done about this, especially on uh, a api.data.com. If you guys haven't checked out that site, is that our community's party affiliation is actually the loosest of all the major minority groups. So as far as you know, we all voted for Hillary Clinton is concerned, or we all voted for Barack Obama a couple times is concerned. That is um, very much a temporary phenomenon in the whole grand scheme of things like we don't have multi-generational democrats or multi-generational republicans in the way that a lot of other communities do which in a way means that we do have relatively speaking a more flexible canvas to chart our own political future is what my hope is with more Asian Americans being politically engaged in the process is that you're not beholden to the party and actually these parties, whether it's the two big ones or the smaller ones that are coming up, they need to fight for your support. And there's plenty of data to back that up because we don't are we aren't reliable votes one way or another, right?
3: I think that last point is really powerful. That these parties need to be courting our vote. Um, where the Democrats, I feel, let me down uh, politically, is assuming uh, that they had my vote. So, um, so, so you know, in in a sense, saying, um, you know, just vote for us. Someday we'll get around to the stuff you know that that is relevant to you and your community. In the meantime, we're gonna do this other this other stuff. Maybe uh, you might even experience harm as a result of this, but you know, just just trust. Or without even that direct message, just just say no. You are going to we're just we're just assuming you're gonna be on our side so we can do whatever. And I I, I felt I did feel condescended to if an outright insulted at times by this kind of, and I'm not talking necessarily national at the national level, but, you know, in the local uh, races that I've, I've seen and, have, and I, that I've participated in, um, there isn't really a firm place, uh, for Asians. It's always assumed, I always got the sense that we were sandbags in someone else's war. Um, so in, you know, I, in, you know, where I live in LA, I actually live in a very conservative, um, conservative-leaning Asian enclave. Um, so it, I, I think the city, uh, either went for Trump or just about, uh, leaned Trump in the last election. Uh, that's how, that's, that's how conservative it actually runs. Um, and so... When when you see local Republicans uh, campaigning or, or giving or throwing events, Asians are always used as as a shield uh, against liberal critique. Uh, and on the flip side, if you see if you see liberal uh, campaigns, Asians are either not included as part of that uh, that core, uh, the core uh, team or core block, or. Uh, or again, used as uh, almost scapegoated, uh, saying it's not just uh, it's not just white people who are doing this to you. It's also Asian people. Uh, look at all these, you know, conservative Asian people. So you know they're just about as bad as actual white Republicans, let's say. So it just felt like 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 without a solid footing, without being able to stake a claim, it's everyone else grabbing the football.
0: I agree. I think Republicans, um, unfortunately. And and I'd prefer a conversation though we're not gonna have it, but I if it was to me, I'd personally have a conversation where we just agreed that the Republicans were untouchable. But I will admit that the Republicans uh, they have a way of going after Asian American voters that's just more direct and appealing to interests, and they're they'll say stuff like, Look, you, you guys are you you guys own property, you guys own you guys just you know, own small and medium-sized businesses, we're gonna lower your taxes, we're gonna deregulate your businesses. Um, Look, you get your kids are your kids are uh, being just sold up the river in terms of how hard it is to get into elite colleges. You know, we're going to we're going to sue the pants off of Yale and Harvard on your behalf, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, they're they're at least making that claim. To lure Asian Americans over, I don't think for the size of our votes, which is meaningless to them, and they're all in the wrong states anyway, it doesn't matter. But I think what Jess is saying is absolutely right in that you know, having Asian faces um, helps to launder their real agenda. And therefore, I think they're making you know, a much sweeter deal because they do actually, in their way, need us more, not for votes, uh, but for PR. And yeah, It's
3: actually very powerful to have us uh, on, quote, their side. It's yeah. a very useful shield to to complain, to hold against, uh, say, a POC critique of the, the whiteness of this party.
0: Yeah. And they're uh, willing say, to elevate, you know, Asians. I think there, there's a Korean American woman who's running for Congress uh, over in Orange County, I believe. Right. I think she won the primaries there. So they're willing to make way and you know we see someone like nikki haley go all the way up to the u.n and she, she she quit today probably to to position herself for you know maybe a senate appointment or something like that but um I, kevin i i do fear that um that i i, I guess what i'm saying is that although you know, I don't think being a a party loyalist is a good idea because I have plenty of problems with the way the Democrats have sidelined Asian Americans and and as just said assumed uh, assumed our vote um, that we're aware of the the way the parties are using and uh, using us and playing us, and that, that that's not necessarily a sign of corruption or whatever, but this is politics and and you know people want things from each other. And I guess that for me, in terms of what they say, political identity, I never really thought of it as am I a committed Democrat or committed Republican, but more so like, do I understand what it is that they want from me? You know, and I and I think that that's helped really that kind of uh, conversation will uh, uh, from from our perspective really helps to inform people to say, you know, you think about it yourself and uh, it'll probably help you understand the world better. You
2: know, right. Right. And I think another kind of going a step further to what you were saying just now is not just understanding what the party, doesn't matter which party you want to belong to, uh, wants from us, but be more strategic and just be stronger at asking from the party what we from them. I think that is the next level of uh, I will call it political sophistication that our community lacks and it's not necessarily a thing on anyone because frankly we just haven't had that many Asian Americans uh, who have served through government or gone through a few campaign cycles enough to figure out how the intricacy of the American democratic system really works, right? Like I fell into it by happenstance and got a few good years out of it and now I kind of know what's going on. On. and i hopefully through this podcast and all the guy all the stuff that you guys are doing writing and recording pods is to help more people understand how they can actually uh, actively affect influence and not just feel uh, really victimized or really passive about the way we are being Essentially take advantage of almost, which is, you know, what Jess was talking about uh, with regard to all these issues that we may not really feel strongly about, but are kind of getting paraded around because there are, you know, very tactical things we can just learn. Like if you give a city council member a thousand bucks for his or her campaign, you can own her time every two weeks for a couple of hours and just tell her or him what you want in your city. Right. Whether you do it or not, that is on you. But you should do it. And more people should do it. And it's a transactional relationship, and people shouldn't feel bad about it. You shouldn't treat your friends like that or your significant others like that. But your politician, your representative, just ask the guy for a a coffee. I gave you a thousand bucks last week. Otherwise, I'm giving your opponent a thousand bucks. That's how it goes.
0: Yeah, I think that's something I really do enjoy about your podcast, which is I think there's a sense of political realism there that's missing from a lot of the older. Some of the former Asian-American political talk, which was, I think, very uh, hokey in a way, idealistic and naive. Uh, It really bought into this idea of like, you know, we should really participate in the great system of American democracy. Um, You know, we really you know, we have to um, participate in order to make our voices heard. I mean, it's all not it's all true. But I, I feel like there was just a lack of realism in the way that approached And what you just said, for example, about, you know, you can buy the time of politicians. Uh, that's a bit of political realism that I think, you know, we should be a lot more comfortable talking about these right. things. And when you, know, you and think,
2: communicate to the politician, yeah. should be about your ideal, right? Like, I don't want people to lose their ideal when they participate in politics. But I think the way you get there, the sausage making process of it could be a little yucky, but it's how people have been doing it for many many years and why shouldn't we do it
1: i don't even think that being uh like not taken for granted you, you, i don't think you even need both parties uh coming to you cuz i mean i'll be totally honest i'm i've given up like i've absolutely no faith that the republicans will even become like 1% palatable to i think most people who are like not white <laughs> uh, so I, i'm just giving them up for dead and i and i honestly i think mo- uh, most uh, asian americans should too but just because that doesn't mean like the democrats are one uh neat little party within it, it, it the democrats you can probably identify at least like four or five uh, subparties parties uh, in there kind of like how a coalition government might work in in parliament I mean, you, I mean, it's like, you've got someone like a Joe Manchin, uh, in the same party. Well, I guess actually, Dem- uh, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat as he always says, but you got like, uh, people, um, far more on, on the left side and there's still one party and there's constantly fighting going on, uh, uh, you know, who will win the primaries or who will win leadership positions. I mean, in New York, there was just this, um, for a measly goddamn state Senate seat, uh, this, uh, this woman, Julia Salazar. And there was such like, like, muckraking drama in the last, like, week before her. Remember that?
0: Yeah. Uh, where was, was yeah. Like, oh, she was, like, Salacious. Keith Hernandez's mistress.
1: Yeah, and she, like, stole money from him by, like, impersonating his ex-wife. And uh, that was, I think, quite obviously the one wing of, of Democrats who are worried that she... Her rise even even for this like fucking new york state senate seat like probably like the dirtiest least desire one of the least desirable uh, uh you know political positions uh, if you're thinking about it i mean who wants to go to albany right but um it, it like you have those in it, like intra-party fights that if asian americans can really sort out what we uh believe in like generally speaking of, of course everyone's going to have their in, uh, independent thoughts within the community as well but you can influence that within the party, even if you give up one party for dead. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's not about trying to position yourself. I think always to get you know both Republicans and Democrats to come to you. You can totally pledge yourself to one party or one side of the ideological aisle and still be very uh, you know important if you can figure out what you want. Yeah, and I, I think um, I think
0: it's worth just being a little bit. Realistic here, a little honest. Which is, you know, what there's twenty. Kevin, what, how many? There's like twenty plus million Asian Americans. Twenty one right? million. It's, it's a, it's a, twenty one million. I mean, that's pretty big. I mean, that's like, that's that's a that's a pretty big number. Yeah, Eighteen mm-hmm. million right. rising should
1: update their name. Twenty one million rising.
3: Wow, good job, us having babies.
2: There you go. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and
0: that, that's a lot of people. And I think that it's it's a, it's a good enough size where I think we sh- we can start thinking. Uh, a little bit more realistically about how political identity of a group actually works and that you know the that, let's let's just be real like the vast majority of that 21 million is not going to care about politics beyond you know occasionally voting uh, but i think that i think that you know there it, there is it, it, there is such a thing as an asian american political elite in a political establishment uh, it's young uh, but I think it does exist. And, and uh, you know, we, we've got, you know, friends in places like the AAPI Victory Fund and, and how all of that falls under a certain establishment and the role that someone like, say, Norm Mineta would play in D.C. for the Asian-American establishment. I don't know if you've ever been to the to the Asian prom. Uh, in DC, do you I know been I'm talking actually about? Oh, you've been to the Asian, oh, prom. To the Asian <laughs> prom.
2: Okay. <laughs> I didn't know it was called the Asian Prom, so okay, I yeah, didn't yeah. dress up for prom until yeah. I got there. And they're like, "Well, this is the Asian Prom." Okay.
0: <laughs> the Asian Prom. Yeah, which which I guess would be the closest thing to the Asian American political establishment. Um, and it's a pretty big event. And uh, and it, you know, I think a lot of us who do things like podcasts and you know writing articles and stuff find ourselves surprisingly close to that. Um, uh, establishment, which is which is nice opportunity, I guess. But I think we should start being realistic and say that you know a lot of what's what matters in terms of Asian American political identity is the identity of that establishment and who's in that establishment. You know, I think I think the language of like mass voting blocks, um, the eighty twenty initiative, things like that, um, almost to me seem to be overcompensating for the. For the relatively small population size of Asian Americans, but I think it's gotten to the point now where um, you know we, we may need to start really thinking about Asian American political establishment and the way it comes down to individuals and personalities and the 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 ways that that establishment um, uh, you know injects itself into the into the political process. Um, so it's it's not just you know how are Asian Americans going to vote in November. Um, but we may you know we may really start to want to track it well to know first and then to start tracking our 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 establishment and and what they're saying and doing.
1: Speaking of the establishment, I don't think we'll have enough time or or I think that much expertise to go into it, but I, I do think we have to realize that yes, there is an establishment and they actually don't represent everyone in the Asian American community and one community that gets really left out uh, is uh, you know what you might, Rudely call like the FOBs. Um, they're the ones who, you know, protest for, uh, Peter Liang, the ones who get recruited by the Edward Blooms and the poor immigrant groups. And they just get completely neglected. And they, they're, and that's why they're so ripe for picking for, for the, uh, for like the, the Trump crowd or or the Republicans. And I do think there is, we have to get real. There is this, like, sneering down at them that I think the establishment does because they, they're kind of embarrassed by them. They have these, uh, like, uh, tendencies and ticks that, that don't really play well in the, in, like the DC, you know, upper class circuit. Uh, and I, I think that's when I say I want like an Asian American political identity, I want it to include, uh, those people too. And, and I think that's gonna ruffle some feathers in the, in like the establishment, the, the ones who, who are very closely tied with the, like the democratic, um, you know, machine.
3: I'm going to say, like, what you're talking about, this is where the Democrats uh, were. I think, teen, you mentioned this earlier, and I think this is where this is where it gets critical. Uh, We're talking about, you know, all these various segments of identitarian politics, right? Race, gender, sexual orientation. uh, Those are the big the big groupings and class is kind of held off at arm's distance along the side, uh, largely relegated as a, a white on white issue. But I think where it comes into play is in is in things like what you're talking about, the Peter Liang case, right? In uh, labor issues, in working class, you know, zoning laws, you know, things that affect the working class, um, and the fact that I feel like Democrats don't properly include where I I see a huge pitfall is uh, the Democrats not properly engaging issues of class. Uh, so these so these. I can see an opportunity for people in those segments Asian Americans in those segments to feel sympathetic to the language of the current uh, Republican Party, which is heavily class based. It's all about these elites looking down on you, suppressing you. Um, We're going to fight to bring back, you know, the rights of the, you know, we're going to dignify the little man. Right, and it, despite it being language targeted at white people, if you know, if it reaches these communities where they feel like even their own are instrumental in their own, you know, oppression in this case, you know, elite Asian Americans not paying any, not giving a shit, uh, sorry for swearing, not caring about these issues or actively working against them uh, I can see an opportunity for them to fall into
0: yeah that absolutely side absolutely of and, and and there was uh, there was there's suggestions now that the real reason that the uh, Trump administration Trump administration's DOJ got involved in the uh, affirmative action lawsuits was uh, really more it you know obviously it's not necessarily about Asian American interests but all, it's kind of a way for them to give a big F you to what they consider the sort of the elite establishment Um. And I, I absolutely agree. I, I hear I hear all the time I mean
3: in fact it's like mm-hmm. I had that conversation in, in my community. Sorry, I'll just I'll just sorry, I know I interrupted you, I'm just gonna push forward. Um, like I just had this conversation recently with somebody in my area. Um, a one point five gen person, um, uh, like early fifties. Uh, who was talking about you know his frustrations with the pol- political climate and saying you know ultimately like you look at the big you know headline making cases this year right um which which of them have been on behalf of Asians and what he pointed to was the affirmative action case um I mean without unpacking it you know why were they pre- you know I think we so I think you know that that case, sh- could stand to be unpacked a little more the motivations behind uh, you know filing a suit like this but you know nevertheless in broad strokes it was a very direct message to people like him saying we're on your side we're actually fighting on behalf of Asians in a in a uh, in a political landscape that does not put uh, Asian Americans at the forefront of anything.
0: Yeah. And I think that that is a, when, if we were to talk, just talk about that amongst ourselves, I would actually think, I wonder what the model majority guys think about this because uh, uh, I, I, it's one of those issues. I think this is, and and we've actually, I think been dancing around it a little bit, but it is a really tough issue because the Republicans at least outwardly are straight up saying, you know, you're, you're illegally discriminating against Asian American students and we're not going to have it. Now, that's, it's a lot more politically complicated than that, but that's how it presents itself. So how do we approach something like that? I mean, I think this is a question that's going to come up over and over so again. We just
1: happen to have a model um, majority guy here. <laughs> Look at that. Exactly. Look at
0: exactly.
1: that, How
2: convenient, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think for all these like really high profile core cases. I mean, I know um, Oxford. You went to law school too. The, the defendant really matters, right? It's a science and an art to pick the right defendant to push the kind of issues that you want to push. And uh, getting rid of affirmative action has been uh, you know, Republican slash a conservative uh, talking point or issue for quite some time. They just didn't have the perfect candidate, right? They had Abigail Fisher a few years ago, who was a white girl in the UT system. That didn't really work, um, even though they got pretty close. And so there are people who've been thinking about this for a long time until they arrive at this, uh, you know, Asian American Harvard discrimination uh, dispute that now they can make some progress on. And, you know, is the Asian American community being taken advantage of? I think it's more nuanced than that because there are a lot of people. And I think this goes into how Asian Americans broadly views education, especially, I would say, certain East Asians and South Asians when it comes to this, is that it's very much a zero-sum game. Right? Like, as much as we want to ding uh, the older generation of our community, many of whom are parents or uncles and whatnot, they are tough as nails. They came to this country, they fought for everything, and they give us the relative comfort that we have right now to have podcasts like this. And their opinion <laughs> it's is so very much. Their opinion is very much that if they're going to touch even uh, ink of this hypothetical prospect that my kid could go to Harvard but couldn't because of his or her race, this is it for me, you know? So every community has their trigger, and I think this is our trigger in a lot of ways. So it's very hard to really uh, kind of convince them otherwise. And I don't know if there's a good answer to... Because I know where we fall on the issue, broadly speaking, all four of us here. But I think the other argument is maybe not the best legal argument, but a very potent political argument.
0: Yeah, in other words, it's a very tough case.
2: (laughs) And now that you have the court that we have, there is a much higher likelihood also that it could go the other way around where affirmative action will be undermined in some sort of uh, degree, right? Which may or may not even happen happen.
3: or um or lawyers.
2: Oh boy. Keep, keep it down, Jess.
3: <laughs> 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 I just noticed that. Like, huh, wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. Law school was the uh the it's the new co- like computer science pre med, you know. I mean there there actually are quite a few Asian American lawyers out there and if you go to a law school it's there's there's nah, a there's lot there's no shortage and, of Asian Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Law and, and then,
3: medicine were the canon, the canonical too. I mean I feel like computer science lawyers
0: are like the working class of like the white collar elite. Like, we're the plumbers of the white-collar elite. It's kind um, of You know, lawyers are doing the grunt work. Uh, it's so, kind
3: of true. You know. It's, it's, you know, totally, like,
0: it's totally true. Yeah. yeah. It's are totally you a doctor, true.
2: Jess?
3: No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, I am an engineer. Got it. Well, data scientist, software engineer, all that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh,
1: since we're approaching the one-hour mark, as, as we hinted at earlier, uh, Kevin, why don't you uh, regale us with some some good old yarns about uh, North Carolina in, you know, the 10 years ago. <laughs> Cheer oh, us wow. up a bit.
2: I mean, that was definitely a good old day sort of a reflection, even amongst campaign friends who've worked on the 2012 campaign, which was nothing like 28, 20, uh, 2008, rather. I mean, I do want to end, I think, on a high note because there is a lot to be hoped for and a lot to, uh, I don't know, a lot to fight for which is that during that campaign, we actually did have, you know, a lot of Asian Americans coming out to vote to participate for the very first time, whether it's because of Barack Obama or because of other people. There are a lot of struggles to that first-time participation. I'm going to say this um, this story in jest, but one of my best friends from that experience is this girl named Punya Kushnapa. She is an Indian-American girl, born and raised in the south side of Illinois, or southern Illinois, rather. And during that time, when she introduced herself as Punya, uh during call time, right, when we call volunteers to get them to, you know, talk about the campaign or vote for us, she wouldn't even get her call answered. The other person, this is in southern, you know, the south, right? And as soon as she changed her name to Megan, when she introduced herself, she got her call answered every single time. and. She also used Sarah or Rachel or any of the, I guess, white girl names that are very (laughs) easy for folks from the South who, frankly, never been touched before by a Democratic campaign until we really showed up uh, in force during 2008 uh, because no one really bothered to talk to their vote. Right. And even though the story itself is a little bit uncomfortable, because in a way, Punia had to whitewash her identity to be able to reach these people they ultimately, a lot of them came around to support our campaign, to volunteer, to, you know, kind of dispel a lot of the misconceptions, right, about uh, entering politics or getting participated in general. So there's a lot of tactics that we still haven't used, quite frankly. There's a lot of tactics that political, I guess, hacks like myself are still figuring out. But to go back to my earlier point, um, I hope everything that we're doing here can help our community just become more politically sophisticated so they can fight for themselves whatever they end up believing in in a more strategic way and if we really take ownership of this entire system this american democracy that we all live in then i think there's still better
1: days ahead wow slow clap (laughs) one development from 2008 is like virginia has become like re- reliably blue now it, it appears i remember when ralph northam won especially over tom Periello. the the feeling was all oh, great another like slightly liberal guy uh and it, it, to think that you know 20 years ago you probably would have killed for a guy like that right um and even in 2016 when when things went so badly uh you know virginia still went blue and i remember like 2008 was like that was like one of along with north carolina i was like oh my god obama won virginia and and now we just take it for granted now it seems
2: Right. I mean, you have Punia slash Megan to thank for that, right? (laughs) Um, So it doesn't matter what name you actually occupy, whether you want to anglicize your name or keep your ethnic name, which a lot of our Asian Americans, uh, fellow Asian Americans do. You have a a place in this country, uh, but you do have to speak up and it's going to be a lot of work, but there is a way to get there.
3: That's actually a really powerful story. Um, And actually, it kind of touches on some frustrations that I've had, you know, in listening to other, um, you know, examples of Asian American political discourse. Uh, I think, Tien, you were talking uh, about this, too, kind of, you know, everything staying kind of in this very idealistic, you know, pie in the sky, assuming the fundamental rightness of the world kind of dialogue. Um, and being very uncomfortable with the idea of compromise or uh, actual like strategy, like getting down to brass tacks to actually fulfill the bigger picture, the big picture um, goal. Um, so I feel like that's kind of where, where where I don't feel like political, like an Asian American political identity, isn't a radically different from a an Asian American, an Asian Amer- an individual Asian Americans. Search for an individual political identity. I think maybe if, if there if there are people just starting out, thinking about these things, thinking about themselves as actual agents in the process, and not just objects being acted upon, uh, it's a little overwhelming to think about. Well, on behalf of all twenty one million of these of of these uh, people of Asian descent in this country, what do we what do we believe in? It's not fun. It's it's more like just you yourself as an Asian American a citizen, a, a human being. Uh, it's on you to refine that thought for yourself as part of your own personal development, and with that set of principles, I think it's it like things kind of fall from there, and then you can start from yourself, and then you think in larger and larger pictures until you get to some conception of a of a collective identity.
0: And 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 I'll just add that we should all congratulate ourselves as podcasters because, I I, I think I, I think that um, in all seriousness <laughs> that you know, it all begins with uh, speech. It it all begins with just talking and, and words and articulating and exchange and communication and all these things. You've got to talk it out. You can't, people can't, it's not a broadcast situation where you can sit at home and wait for someone to tell you what's up. You don't really know what's going on until you start exchanging ideas with other people and testing your beliefs. And to me, that's what should happen right now. Because if you look, if you look to your left and you look to your right, Everyone's chattering. Everyone's shouting. Everyone's going nuts. Everyone's just talking their damn mind. Uh, I think that should be for Asian Americans, instead of a traumatic experience, that should be a very liberating experience to say that no one expects you to be quiet anymore. They're too busy talking.
3: Well, I would say there are people who do expect you to be quiet. And that's uh, that is yeah. A f- pay them
0: pay him no attention. And I think that no a lot attention. of people do
3: fall for that. I think, especially in some media figures, not not our elite establishment political figureheads, but in the in the class mm. of you know Asian American pundits or you know uh, public figures. Oh yeah. yeah. I feel like they do fall yeah. into a trap of sublimating themselves in 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 favor of other political identities. So kind of a yeah. Self-suppression. They could just go.
0: <laughs> and they can just go, and, yeah. and and we've we've spent a lot of time telling them to go, and uh, you know, I, I you know I'm glad for the emergence of things like uh, model majority, which is a lot more expansive, I think, in the inclusion of the types of guests and and the the the, the places they all go. Um, the doors are wide open, and so you know, I think to the extent that there is. People feel a pressure to not say what's really on their mind, and I'm talking really on their mind. Um, you know, just pay no heed to those, particularly the Asian-American establishment that suggests that you don't say anything. There's no reason, they have no enforcement mechanism, uh, and there's no reason to, to pay any heed to that pressure.
1: Or rather, it, it's 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 mo- they also. It's not just that they, if or they'll say speak up, but make sure to speak up using the script we give you. And if you deviate, you know, your trouble. Um, Kevin, I think uh, you're going to have the honor of being our 50th episode. Um, our last one was 48, but uh, we just saw a movie this weekend that we feel like we have to comment on because it's coming out this weekend. Um, so uh, I think we're going to release this in a couple of weeks. So you'll get to be in the, uh, the big 5-0 Oh, wow. That's quite the honor. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any, uh, any closing thoughts, Kevin? Oh, I got one question oh.
0: for Kevin, which I've, it's, a, it's a burning question I've had for a long time. What, what, is, what is the origin of the name Model Majority?
2: Um, so besides the fact that the domain name was available, modelmajoritypodcast dot com um, <laughs> it's, it's so it's actually kind of funny, right? There are like three layers to this now to this question. One is that it was just a simple play on word to the model minority myth, right? We just wanted to turn that shit upside down and be like, oh, we're we don't have none of this stuff. This model minority bullshit. We're just gonna have this podcast. And then, as we dig deeper into you know, the AAPI racial category, or at least how politicians category us, categorize us, is that all of our uh, countries of origin, um, if you add it up, is actually a huge chunk of the entire world to the extent that I'm pretty sure if we have a worldwide election for a president, there's going to be an Asian girl or an Asian guy winning this thing because we definitely have the population majority <laughs> of the entire world. Um, oh, and then the third layer like to that. this, uh, the third layer to this is that, as much as I don't like the model minority stereotype, I don't actually mind the model part. I think there is a space for us to be models of something greater in this country. But to be able to do that, we do have to display more ownership of the process and of the system, which goes to all these things that we've talked about earlier in the podcast. So we should act like majorities in this country. And that's how we're going to get there. So those are the three interpretations of the model of majority podcast name.
0: I like it in in, in increasing order of uh, of respectability, uh, but <laughs> 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 I love it. Yeah.
3: And the domain was available, so this was just. And the domain was, was
0: available,
2: <laughs> uh, right? You know? <laughs> like I said, I'm a practical guy. I'm a very practical <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> person. If the domain name isn't there, I can't go for it. You know. That's the best. <laughs> no, of I like that.
3: Stories. That's. If I could sum up, you know, your, 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 your you know, the work they've been doing on, on the podcast, I feel like it's, it's principled pragmatism, there's a solid core of ethics, uh, and, and morality and principle behind what you're saying. Um, and that's your guiding light. So, so, and you strategize based on that. So, I really respect that it's coming from a very uh, a very principled place. That's very well reasoned and well thought out. So it's not necessarily reactive the way so much other you know so so much other discourse out there tends to it tends to be a trap that a lot of discourse falls into. Um, So I I really like that. There's a there seems to be there's a foundation there on which to kind of build a larger picture of uh, what you know a, a different kind of future looks like.
1: Right. Appreciate that, Jess. Yeah, well said. Um, Anything else to add uh, as like a final thought,
2: Kevin? Uh, No, I think this is a great conversation. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to have more and more people like you guys just talking about this, not just amongst ourselves anymore, but feel comfortable um, essentially broadcasting it out, right, for other people to hear. So more and more people in our community feel comfortable, number one, just having a space to talk, and then hopefully having a space to listen, and then having a space to think through all this so we can all be better American citizens or even non-citizens like you, Oxford, who still cares about the way this country is going. Don't don't forget about us
1: aliens, yeah.
2: No, exactly. (laughs) I think that's a really critical point. And if I can just close with one small anecdote again from the 2008 campaign, Uh, two of my best, best volunteers during that campaign, one flew from Ireland and one came from uh, Great Britain. These are just normal people who actually spend their own time coming over to the United States, to Charlotte, North Carolina, of all places, to work for me for free for three straight weeks. And we still stay in touch. So the stuff that we do is very much, um, uh, I think, uh, looked upon from the rest of the world uh, as well. So we got that responsibility going
1: for us. Well said. Uh, thanks for listening to this uh, latest episode of escape from plan a uh, um, if you like our pod uh, please subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud and google play and please rate us that's uh if you like us that's like the best way you can pay pay us anything give us five stars and spread the word.